I'm here at RubyConf San Diego with Mike Parham. He's the creator of Sidekick and Factory. Yeah, well, thank you, Jeremy, for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure. So for people who aren't familiar with, I guess we'll start with Sidekick because that's, I think that's what you're most known for. Sure. Um, if people don't know what it is, maybe you can give like a, a small little explanation. Ruby apps generally have two major pieces of infrastructure powering them. You've got your app server, which serves your web pages and the browser. And then you generally have something off on the side that processes, you know, data for a million different reasons. And that's generally called a background job framework. And that's what Sidekick is. It Rails is usually the thing that, that handles your web stuff. And then Sidekick is the sidekick to Rails, so to speak. And, and so this would fit the, the same role as I think in Python, there's Celery. Yep. And then in the Ruby world, I guess there is uh, rescue is another kind of job. Yeah, background job frameworks are quite prolific in Ruby. The Ruby community is kind of settled on that as the, the standard pattern for application development. So yeah, we've got a half a dozen to a dozen different, different examples throughout history. But the major ones today are sidekick, rescue, delayed job, good job, and, and, and others down the line, yeah. I think working in other languages, it, you mentioned how in Ruby, there's this very clear preference to use these job scheduling systems, these job queuing systems. And I'm not sure if that's as true in, say, if somebody's working in Java or C Sharp or and whatnot. And I wonder if there's something specific about Ruby that, that makes people kind of gravitate towards this as, as the default thing they would use. That's a good question. What makes Ruby the one that so needs a background job system? I think Ruby has historically been very single-threaded. And so every Ruby process can only do so much work. And so Ruby oftentimes does uh, spin up a lot of different processes. And so having processes that are more focused on one thing is is a, is more standard so you'll have your application server processes which focus on just serving http responses and then you have some other sort of focused process and that just became background job processes but yeah i haven't really thought of it all that much but uh you know something like java for instance heavily multi-threaded and so and extremely heavyweight in terms of memory and startup time. So it's much more frequent in Java that you just start up one process and that's it, right? You you just do everything in that one process. And so you may have dozens and dozens of threads, both serving HTTP and doing work on the side too. Um, whereas in Ruby, that just kind of naturally, there, there was a natural split there. So that's actually a, a really good insight because in the keynote at RubyConf, Matt's the creator of Ruby, you know, he mentioned the how the fact that there is this global interpreter lock or, or global VM lock in Ruby. And so you can't really do multiple things in parallel and make use of all the different cores. And so it makes a lot of sense why you would say like, okay, I, I need to spin up separate processes so that I can actually take advantage of, of my system. Right, yeah, and the um, the GVL is the acronym we use in, in the Ruby community, or GIL. That global lock really kind of is a forcing function for much of the application architecture in Ruby 
Ruby uh, applications because it does limit how much processing a single Ruby process can do. So uh, even though Sidekick is heavily multi-threaded, you can only have so many threads executing because they all have to share one core because of that global lock. So unfortunately, that's that's been um, one of the limiter, limiting factors to Sidekick scalability is that that lock. And boy, I would pay a lot of money to just have that lock go away. But you know, it, uh, Python is going through a, a very long-term experiment about trying to remove that lock, and I'm very curious to see how well that goes because I would love to see Ruby do the, the same. And we'll see what happens in the future, but it's always frustrating when I come to another RubyConf and I hear another Matt's keynote where he's asked about the gill and he continues to say, well, the gill's going to be around as, as long as I can tell. So it's a little bit frustrating, but it's it's just what you have to deal with. I'm not too familiar with them, but they, they did mention during the keynote, I think there are actors or something like that. There, there's some way of being able to get around the gill, but there are these constraints on them. And in the context of Sidekick and, and maybe Ruby in general, how do you feel about those options or those solutions? Yeah, so I think it was Ruby 3.2 that introduced this concept of what they call a Ractor, which is like a thread, except it does not have the global lock. It can run independent of the global lock. The problem is, is because it doesn't use the global lock, it has pretty severe constraints on what it can do and the, and more specifically the data it can access. So Ruby apps and Rails apps throughout history have traditionally accessed a lot of global data, a lot of class level data, and accessed all this data in a in a read-only fashion. So there's no race conditions because no one's changing any of it, but it's still lots of threads all accessing the same variables. Well, Raptors can't do that at all. The only data Raptors can access is data that they own. And so that is completely foreign to Ruby application, traditional Ruby applications. So essentially, Raptors aren't compatible with the vast majority of existing Ruby code. So I, I, I toyed with the idea of prototyping Sidekick and Raptors, and within about a minute or two, I just ran into these, these, uh, these very severe constraints. And so that's why you don't see a lot of people using Raptors, even still, even though they've been out for a year or two now. You just don't see a lot of people using them because they're they're really limited limited in what they can do. But on the other hand, they're unlimited in how well they can scale. So we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, in the future, they'll make a lot of improvements and uh, maybe they'll become more usable over time. And with the existence of a job queue or job scheduler like Sidekick, you're able to create additional processes to get around that global lock, I suppose. What are the downsides of doing so versus another language, like we mentioned Java earlier, which is capable of having true parallelism in the same process? Yeah, so you can start up multiple Ruby processes to process things in, in truly in parallel. 
Um, the the issue is that you uh, you do get some duplication in terms of memory. So your your Ruby app may be a, take a gigabyte per process, and you can do copy on write forking. You can fork and get some sh- memory sharing with copy on write uh, semantics on Unix operating systems. But you may only get, let's say, 30% memory savings. So there is still a, a, a significant memory overhead to forking, you know, let's say, eight processes versus having eight threads. You know, you, you, you may have uh, eight threads can operate in a gigabyte process, but if you want to have eight processes, that may take, let's say, four gigabytes of RAM. So you, you still, it's not going to cost you eight gigabytes of RAM. You know, it's not like just one times eight, but y- there's still uh, overhead of having those separate processes. Would you say it's more of a a cost restriction? Like it costs you more to run these applications or are there actual problems that you can't solve because of this restriction. Help me understand. What do you mean by restriction? Do you mean just the GVL in general, or the the fact that forking processes still costs memory? I think. Well, it would be both, right? So you're you have two restrictions right now. You have the the GVL, mm-hmm. which means you can't have parallelism within the same process, and then your other option is to spin up a bunch of processes, which you have said is. The downside there is that you're using a lot more RAM. Mm-hmm. I suppose my question is that, does that actually stop you from doing anything? Like if you throw more money at the problem, you go like, we're going to have more instances, I'll pay for the RAM, it's fine. Can that basically get you out of these situations? Or are these limitations actually stopping you from from doing things you could do in other languages? Well, you certainly have to manage the multiple processes, right? So you've got to, you know, if one child process crashes, you've got to have a, a, a parent or supervisor process watching all that and monitoring and, and restarting the process. I don't think it restricts you necessarily. It just, it adds complexity to your deployment. And and it, it's just a question of efficiency, right? Instead of being able to deploy on a, on a one gigabyte droplet, I've got to deploy to a four gigabyte droplet, right? Because I just, I need the RAM to run the eight processes. So it, it, it it's more of just a purely a, a function of how much money am I going to have to throw at this problem? And, and what's it going to cost me uh, in, in operational costs to, to operate this application in production? So during the keynote, uh, Matt's had mentioned that Rails is really suitable as this one-person framework, like you can have a very small team or maybe even yourself and and build this product. And so I guess from your perspective, once you cross a certain threshold, is like what Ruby and what Sidekick provides not enough and that's why you need to start looking into other languages or like where's the turning point or the... If you, if you see right, what I mean, yeah. Right, right. It's all about the problem you're trying to solve, right? At the end of the day, uh, the, the question is just what are we trying to solve and how are we trying to solve it? So at a higher level, you've got to think about the architecture. If the problem you're trying to solve, if the service you're trying to build, if the app you're trying to operate, if that doesn't really fall into 
the traditional Ruby application architecture, then you you might look at at another language or another ecosystem. Something like Go, for instance, can compile down to a single binary, which makes deployment really easy. It makes shipping a, a product onto a user's machine much simpler than deploying a Ruby application onto a user's desktop machine, for instance, right? Um, Ruby does have this this problem of how do you package everything together and deploy it somewhere? Whereas Go, when you can just compile to a single binary, now you just got a single thing and it's just drop it on the file system and execute it. It's easy. So um, different different ecosystems have different application architectures, which empower different ways of solving the, the same problems. Uh, but, you know, Rails as a, as a one-man framework, or sorry, one-person framework, it, it, I don't... I don't necessarily, I, that's, a, that's sort of a catchy marketing slogan, but I just think of Rails as the most productive framework you can use. So you, as a single person, you can maximize what you ship and the, the, the value that you can create because Rails is so productive. So it seems like it's maybe the, the domain or the type of application you're making, like you mentioned, the command line application, because you want to be able to deliver it to your user easily, just give them a binary. Something like Go or perhaps Rust makes a lot more sense. And then I could see people saying that if you're doing something with machine learning, like the community behind Python, it's they're just they're all there. So that was exactly the example I was going to use also. Yeah, if you're doing something with data or AI, Python is a, is going to be a more a more traditional natural choice. Yeah. That doesn't mean Ruby can't do it. That doesn't mean you wouldn't be able to solve the problem with Ruby. And and there's that just also means that there's more space for someone who wants to come in and make an impact in the Ruby community, find a problem that Ruby's not really well suited to solving right now, and build the tooling out there to to try and solve it. You know, I I saw a talk from the fellow who makes the Glimmer Gem, which is a, a native UI toolkit. Uh, a gem for building native UIs in Ruby, which Ruby traditionally can't do. But he's he's done an amazing job at sort of surfacing APIs to build these um, these native uh, native applications, which I think is great. It's awesome. It's it's so invigorating to see Ruby in a new space like that. Um, I talked to someone else who is doing the Polars gem, which is focused on data processing. So it kind of takes. Um, Python and pandas and brings that to Ruby, which is is awesome because if you're a Ruby developer, now you've got all these additional tools which can allow you to solve new sets of problems out there. So that's that's kind of what's exciting in the Ruby community right now is just bring it into new spaces. In addition to Sidekick, you have uh, another product called Factory, I believe. And so does that serve a, a similar purpose? Is that another job scheduling job queuing system it is yes and it's 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 similar in a way to sidekick it looks similar it's got similar concepts at the core of it um at the end of the day sidekick is limited to ruby because sidekick executes in a ruby vm it executes the jobs and the jobs are have to be written in ruby because you're running in the ruby vm factory was my attempt to bring sidekick functionality to every other language. I wanted I wanted sidekick for JavaScript. I wanted sidekick for Go. I wanted sidekick for Python. 
because a lot of these other languages also could use a system, a background job system. And the problem, though, is that as a single man, I can't port Sidekick to every other language. I don't know all the languages, right? So Factory kind of changes the architecture and um, allows you to execute jobs in any language. It, it replaces Redis and provides a server where you just fetch jobs and you can use it from it. You can use that protocol from any language to, to build your own worker processes that execute jobs in whatever language you want. When you say it replaces Redis, so it doesn't use Redis um, internally? It, it has its own? It does use Redis oh, okay. under yeah. the covers, yeah. It starts Redis as a child process and connects to it over a Unix socket. And so it's really stable. It's really fast. But from the outside, the, the worker processes, they just talk to factory. They don't know anything about Redis at all. I see. And for someone who, like we mentioned earlier in the Python community, for example, there is um, Celery. For someone who is using a task scheduler like that, what's the incentive to, to switch or use something different? Well, I, I always say if you're using something right now, I, I'm not going to try and convince you to switch necessarily. It's when you have pain that you want to switch and, and move away. Maybe you have maybe there's capabilities in the newer system that you really need that the old system doesn't provide. But Celery is such a, a, a widely known system that I, I'm not necessarily going to try and convince people to move away from it. But if people are looking for a new system, one of the things that Celery does that Factory does not do is Celery provides like data adapters for using store lots of different storage systems, right? Factory doesn't do that. Factory is more has more of the Rails mantra of, you know, omakase where we choose I choose to use Redis and that's it. You don't you don't have a choice for what to use because who cares? You know, at the end of the day, let Factory deal with it. It's it's not something that you should even necessarily be concerned about. It's just just try Factory out and and see how it works for you. Um, so I, I try to take those operational concerns off the table and just have the user focus on you know usability, performance, and, and that sort of thing. But it is it's it's another background job system out there for people to try out and see if they like that and and if they want to um, if they know Celery and they want to use Celery, more power to them. And Sidekick and Factory, they serve a very similar purpose for someone who they have a new project, they haven't chosen a job scheduling system. If they were using Ruby, would it ever make sense for them to use Factory versus use Sidekick? Uh, Factory is excellent in a polyglot uh, situation. So if you're using multiple languages... Uh, if you're creating jobs in Ruby, but you're executing them in Python, for instance, um, you know, if you I have people who are creating jobs in PHP and executing them in Python, for instance, that kind of polyglot scenario, Sidekick can't do that at all. So Factory is useful there. Uh, in terms of Ruby, Ruby is just another language to Factory. So there is a um, there is a Ruby API for using Factory and you can create and execute Ruby jobs with Factory. But uh, you'll find that in the Ruby community, Sidekick is much widely 
much more widely used and, and understood and known. So if you're just using Ruby, I think I think Sidekick is, is the right choice. I, I wouldn't look at Factory. But if you do want, need find yourself needing that polyglot tool, then Factory is there. And this is maybe one maybe one layer of abstraction higher, but there's a, a product called Temporal that has some of this job scheduling, but also this workflow component. I wonder if you've tried that out and how you think about that product. I've heard of them. I, I don't know a lot about the product. Um, I do have a workflow API, the Sidekick Batches, which allow you to fan out jobs and then and then execute callbacks when all the jobs in that in that batch are done. But I don't provide sort of a, a high-level graphical workflow editor or anything like that. Those to me are more marketing tools that you use to sell the tool for six figures. Um, I, and I don't think they're usable and I don't think uh, they're actually used day to day. Uh, I, I provide an uh, API for, for developers to use, and developers don't like moving blocks of code around in a GUI. They, they want to write code. And um, so, yeah, they, they, it, Temporal, I, like I said, I don't know much about them. I also Are they a venture capital-backed startup? They are, is my understanding, yeah. Yeah. That I, any, any sort of venture capital-backed startup um, who's building technical infrastructure, I... I would look long and hard at. I'm, I, I think open source is the right core to build on. Of course, I sell commercial software, but I'm bootstrapped. I'm profitable. I'm going to be around forever. A VC-backed startup, they tend to go bankrupt because they either get big or they go out of business. So that would be my only comment is, is be a little bit leery about relying on commercial venture capital-based infrastructure for for companies uh, long-term. So I think that's a really interesting part about your business is that I think a lot of open source maintainers have a really big challenge figuring out how to make it as a living, right? The There are so many projects that they uh, have a very permissive license and you can use them freely. One example I can think of is I, I talked with uh, David Kramer, who's the CTO at Century, and he, I don't think they use it anymore, but they they were using Nginx, right? And he's like, well, Nginx, they have a paid product, like Nginx Plus or something. I don't know what the name is, but he was like, but I'm not going to pay for it, right? I'm just going to use the free one. Why would I you know, pay for the, um, the paid thing? So... I, I'm kind of curious from your perspective when you were coming up with Sidekick both as an open source product but also as a commercial one, how did you make that determination of like to make a product where it's going to be useful in its open source form but I can still convince people to pay money for it? Yeah, the I was terrified. To be blunt, when I first started out, when I started the Sidekick project, I knew it was going to take a lot of time. I knew if it was successful, I was going to be doing it for the next decade, right? So I started it in 2012, and here I am in 2023, uh, over a decade, and I'm still doing it. So my expectation was met in that regard. And I knew I was not going to be able to last that long if I was making zero dollars, right? You just, you, per you burn out. Nobody can last that long. 
well, there, I guess there are a few exceptions to that rule, but uh, yeah, money, I, I tend to think, makes things a little more sustainable for sure, especially if you can turn it into a full-time job, um, solving and supporting a, a project that you you love and, and is is, you know, your, your, your baby, your child, so to speak, your software, uh, a creation that you've given to the world. But I was terrified. But the one thing I did was at the time I was blogging a lot. And so I was telling people about Sidekick. I was telling people what was to come. I was talking about ideas. And the one thing that I blogged about was financial experiments. I said bluntly to the, to to the Ruby community, I'm going to be experimenting with financial stability and, and sustainability with this project. So not only did I create this open source project, but I was also publicly saying, I, I need to figure out how to make this work for the next decade. And so eventually that led to Sidekick Pro. And I had to figure out how to build a closed source Ruby gem, which uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of. So I was kind of in the wild there. Um, but, you know, thankfully all the pieces came together and it was actually possible. I, I couldn't have done it if it wasn't possible. Like we would not be talking if, if I couldn't make a, a private gem. So, um, but it happened to work out uh, and it allowed me to, to gate features behind a paywall effectively. And, and yeah, you're right. It, it can be tough to make people pay for software, but I'm a developer who's selling to other developers, not not just developers, open source developers, and they know that they have this financial problem, right? They know that there's this sustainability problem, and I was blunt in saying this is my solution to my sustainability. So I I I charge what I think is a very fair price. It's only a thousand dollars a year. To a hobbyist, that may seem like a lot of money. To a business, it's a drop in the bucket. So it was easy for developers to say, hey, listen, we want to buy this tool for a thousand bucks. It'll ensure our infrastructure is maintained for the next decade. And it's, and it's, and it's relatively cheap. It's way less than uh, you know, a salary or even a laptop. So, so that's, that's what I did. And um, it's, it worked out great. People, people really understood. Even today, I talk to people and they say, we, we signed up for Sidekick Pro to support you. So it's, it's, it's really um, invigorating to hear people uh, thank me and, and they're, they're actively happy that they're paying me and our customers. It's sort of a, maybe a not super common story, right? In terms of what you went through. Because when I think of open core businesses, I think of companies like uh, GitLab, which are venture funded, uh, very different scenario there. And so I, I wonder, like in your case, so you started in 2012 and there were probably no venture backed competitors, right? People saying that we're going to make this job scheduling system and some VC is going to give me $5 million and build a team to work on this. It was probably at the time, maybe it was Rescue, which was... There was a, a venture-backed system called IronMQ. Mm. And I'm not sure if they're still around or not, but they they took a 
one or more funding rounds. I'm not sure exactly, but they were VC backed. They were doing background jobs, scheduled jobs, uh, you know, running container, running container jobs. They they eventually, I think, wound up sort of settling on Docker containers. They'll basically spin up a Docker container, and that container can do whatever it wants. It can execute for a second and then shut down, or it can run for for however long. But they would, um, yeah, I yeah, I'll I'll, I'll stop there because I don't know the actual details of exactly their system. But I'm not sure if they're still around. But that's the only one that I remember offhand that was around, you know, years ago. Yeah, it's it, it, it's mostly, you know, low-level open source infrastructure. And so anytime you have funded startups, they're generally using that open source infrastructure to build their own SaaS. And so SaaSes are the vast majority of where you see sort of uh, commercial software. So I guess in that way, it, it, it gave you this this window or this area where you could come in and there wasn't other than that iron product there wasn't this big money that you were fighting against it was sort of it was you telling people openly i'm i'm working on this thing i need to make money so that i can sustain it and if you like the work i do then you know basically support me right and right. and so i think that i'm wondering how we can reproduce that more often because when you see new products a lot of times it is vc backed right because people say i need to work on this i need to be paid and i can't ask a team to do this for nothing right so yeah it's it's a wicked problem uh, it's a really really hard problem to solve if you take vc you there that that really kind of means that you need to be making tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in sales if you are building a small or relatively small you know put small in quotes there because i don't really know what that means but if you have a small open source project you can't charge huge amounts for it right i mean sidekick is a i would call a medium-sized open source project and I'm charging a thousand bucks for it. So if you're building, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't even want to necessarily give example, but if you're building some open source project and it's one of 300 libraries that people's applications will depend on, you can't necessarily charge a thousand dollars for that library. D- depending on the size and, and the capabilities, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but there's going to be a long tail of open source projects that's just they can't they can't charge much if anything for them so unfortunately we have you know these you kind of have two pathways venture capital where you've got to sell a ton or free and and I've kind of walked that fine line where I'm I'm a small business I can charge a small amount because I'm bootstrapped and, and I don't need huge amounts of money. And I, and I have a, a project that is of the right size to where I can charge a decent amount of money. That means that I can survive with 500 or 1,000 customers. I don't need to have $100 million worth of customers because I, you know, when I started the business, one of the constraints I said is I don't want to hire anybody. I'm just going to be solo. 
and 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 part of the part of my ability to keep a low price and and keep running sustainably even with just you know only a few hundred customers is because I'm solo. I don't have the overhead of investors. I don't have the overhead of other employees. I don't have an office space. You know, my, my overhead is very small. So that is, um, you know, I just kind of have a unique business in that way, I guess you might say. I think that's, that's interesting about your business as well. But the fact that you've kept it, you've kept it solo, which I would imagine in most businesses, they need support people. They need developers outside of maybe just one. Um, there's all sorts of other, I don't think overhead is the right word, but you just need more people, right? And and what, what do you think it is about Sidekick that's made it possible for it to just be a one-person operation? There's so much administrative overhead in a business. I explicitly create business policies so that I can run solo. You know, my support policy is officially you get one email ticket or issue per quarter. And and anything more than that, I can bounce back and say, well, you're you're requiring too much support. In reality, I don't enforce that at all and people email me all the time, but but things like Things like dealing with accounting and bookkeeping and taxes and legal stuff, licensing, all that is, yeah, a little bit of overhead, but I've kept it as minimal as I can. And part of that is I don't want to hire another employee because then I, that increases the administrative overhead that I have. And and Sidekick is so tied to me and my knowledge that if I hire somebody, they're probably not going to know Ruby and threading and all the intricate technical detail necessary to build and maintain and support the system. And so really, you'll kind of regress a little bit. Like I, I won't be, we won't be able to give as good support because I'm busy helping that other employee. So yeah, it, it's, it's a tightrope act where you've got to really figure out how can I scale myself as far as possible without overwhelming myself. The, the overwhelming thing that I have that I've never been able to solve is just dealing with billing inquiries, customers, companies emailing me saying, how do we buy this thing? Can I get an invoice? Every company out there, it seems, wants an invoice. And the problem with invoicing is it takes a lot more manual labor and administrative overhead to issue that invoice, to collect payment on the invoice. So that's one of the reasons why I have a very strict policy about credit card only for, for the vast majority of my customers. And I demand that companies pay a lot more. They, you have to have a, a pretty big enterprise license if you want an invoice. And if the company, if the company comes back and complains and says, well, you know, that's ridiculous. We don't, we don't want to pay that much. We don't need that much. Uh, you know, I, I say, okay, well then you have two, two things, two, uh, two things you can either pay with a credit card or you can not use sidekick. Like that's, that's it. I'm, I don't need your money. I, I don't want the administrative overhead of dealing with your accounting department. 
I, I just want to support my my customers and build my software. And and so yeah, I don't want to turn into a billing clerk. So sometimes sometimes the 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 best thing in business that you can do is just say no. That's very interesting because I think being a solo person is what probably makes that possible, right? Because if you had the additional staff, then you might say like, well, I need to pay my staff, so we should be getting, you know, as much business as we can. Yeah, chasing every customer you can, yeah, right? Yeah. But yeah, every customer is different. I mean, I have some customers that just, they never contact me. They pay their bill really fast or right on time. And they're paying me, you know, five figures, 20, 30, $40,000 a year. And they just, it's it, God bless them because those are are the best customers to have, and the worst customers are the ones who are paying ninety nine bucks a month, and everything that they don't understand or whatever is a complaint. So sometimes sometimes you you want to vet your customers from that perspective and say which one of these customers are going to be good, which ones are going to be problematic. And you're only one person and. I'm not sure how many customers you have, but... I have 2,000 customers. 2,000 customers, okay. Approximately, yeah. And has that been relatively stable or has there been growth? Or no, It's been relatively stable the last couple of years. Ruby has, has sort of plateaued. Um, it's you don't see a lot of growth. Uh, I'm getting probably um, 15, 20% growth maybe. Uh, so I'm not growing like a weed like you know venture capital would want to see. But steady incremental growth is is, is uh, wonderful, especially since I do very little sales and marketing. You know, I come to RubyConf, I, I, I tweet out, you know, I, I toot out funny Mastodon toots occasionally and, and, um, and, and put out new releases of the software. And, and that's, that's essentially my, my marketing. My marketing is just staying in front of developers and 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 being a presence in the Ruby community, but yeah, it it's uh, I, I I see not a not a huge amount of churn, but I see enough sales to 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 stay up, keep my head above water, and to keep growing um, slowly but surely. And as you've had that steady growth, has the support burden not grown with it? Not as much because once customers are on Sidekick and they've got it working, then by and large, you don't hear from them all that much. There's always GitHub issues, you know, customers open GitHub issues. I love that. But yeah, by and large, the community finds bugs and opens up issues. And so things remain relatively stable. I don't get a lot of the complete newbie who has no idea what they're doing and wants me to to tell them how to use Sidekick. that I just don't see much of that at all. Um, I have seen it before, but in, in that case, generally, I, I, I politely tell that person that, listen, I'm not here to educate you on the product. It's, there's documentation in the wiki, uh, and there's tons of, of more Ruby, generic Ruby uh, educational material out there. That's just not, not what I do. So... So yeah, by and large, the support uh, burden is is not too bad because once people are are up and running, it's stable and and they don't they don't need to contact me. I, I wonder too if that's perhaps a function of the the price because if you're a new developer or or someone who's not too familiar with 
how to do job processing or what they want to do when you th- th- there is the open source product of course but then the next step up i believe is about $100 a month and if you're somebody who is kind of just getting started and learning how things work you're probably not going to pay that is my guess and so you'll never hear from them right yeah I, well, that that's a good point too is the the open source version which is what people inevitably are going to use and integrate into their app at first because it's open source, you're not going to email me directly. Um, and when people do email me directly, sidekick support questions, I I do I reply literally. I'm sorry, I don't respond to private email unless you're a customer. Please open a GitHub issue, and um, that I try to educate both my open source users and my commercial customers to try and stay in GitHub issues because private email is a silo right? Private email doesn't help anybody else but them. If I can get people to go into GitHub issues, then that's a public record that people can search. Because if one person has that problem, there's probably a dozen other people that have that same problem. And then that other, those other 11 people can search and and find the solution to their problem at four in the morning when I'm asleep, right? So that's, that's what I'm trying to do is, is keep uh keep everything out in the open so that people can self-service as much as possible. And on the open source side, are you still primarily the main contributor or are do you have other people that are involved? I mean, I'd say I do 90% of the work, yeah, which is why I don't feel guilty about keeping 100% of the money. A lot of open source projects when they look for financial sustainability, they also look for how can we split this money amongst the team. And that's that's a completely different topic that I've, is another reason why I've stayed solo is if I hire an employee and I pay them $200,000 a year as a developer, I'm meanwhile keeping all the rest of the profits of the company. And so that almost seems a little bit unfair because we're both still working 40 hours a week, right? Why am I the one making the vast majority of the, of the profit and the money? Um, so uh, I've always, uh, that's another reason why I've stayed solo. But, but yeah, having a team of people working on something, I do get regular commits, regular pull requests from people fixing a, a bug that they found or just making a tweak that, that they saw that they thought they could improve. A, a little more rarely, I get a, a significant uh, improvement or feature as a pull request. But Sidekick is so stable these days that it really doesn't need a team of people maintaining it. The the volume of changes necessary, I can I can easily keep up with that. So I'm 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 still doing ninety ninety five percent of the work. Yeah. So I think Sidekick has sort of a unique positioning where it's the code base itself is small enough where you can maintain it yourself and you have some help, but primarily you're, you're the um, main maintainer. And then you have enough customers who are willing to, to pay for the benefit it gives them on top of what the, the open source product provides. Cause it's, it's, you were talking about how, every project people work on, they have 
they could have hundreds of dependencies, right? And to ask somebody to to pay for each of them is is probably not ever going to happen. And, and so it's interesting to think about how you have things like, say, you know, Open SSL. You know, it's a library that a whole bunch of people rely on, but nobody is going to pay a monthly fee to use it. You have things like uh, recently there was HashiCorp with Terraform, right? They they decided to change their license because they they wanted to get you know some of that value back, some of the money mm. back, and the community basically revolted, right? And and did a, did a fork, and so. I'm I'm kind of curious, like, yeah, where people can find these sweet spots, like, like Sidekick, where they can find this space where it's just small enough, where you can work on it on your own, and still get people to pay for it. it it's I'm trying to picture, like, where are the spaces? We need to look at other forms of financing beyond pure capitalism. If this is truly public infrastructure that needs to be maintained for the long term, then why are we, why is it that we depend on capitalism to do that? Um, our roads, our water, our sewer, those are not capitalist, right? Those are utilities. That's public infrastructure that we maintain, that the government helps us maintain. And in, in a sense, tech infrastructure is similar or, or could be thought of in, in a similar fashion. So things like Open Collective, things like uh, there's a there's a organization in Europe called NLNet, I think, in, out of the Netherlands. And they do a lot of grants to various open source projects to help them improve the, the state of digital infrastructure. Uh, they, they support, for instance, Mastodon uh, as a open source project that doesn't have any sort of corporate backing. They see that as um, necessary social media infrastructure uh, for the long term. And I and I think that's wonderful. I, I like to see those new directions being explored where you don't have to turn everything into a product, right? And and try and market and sell um, and, and run ads and, and do all this stuff. If you can just make the case that, hey, this is, this is useful public infrastructure that so many different um, technical, uh, you know, applications and businesses could rely on much like FedEx and DHL use our roads to the benefit of their own, you know, their own co corporate profits. Um, why, why, why shouldn't we think of tech infrastructure sort of in a similar way? So I, yeah, I, I would like to see us explore more in that direction. I understand that in America that may not happen for quite a while because we are very capitalist focused, but it's encouraging to see um, places like Europe uh, a little more, open to to trialing things like cooperatives and and grants and large long-term grants to to projects to see if they can uh, provide sustainability in, in a, you know in a new way yeah that's a, a good point because I think right now a lot of the open source infrastructure that we all rely on either it's 
being paid for by large companies and you're at the whim of those large companies. If Google decides we don't want to pay for you to work on this project anymore, where does the money come from, right? And on the other hand, there's the thousands, tens of thousands of people who are doing it just for free out of the, you know, the goodness of their, their heart. And that's where a lot of the burnout comes from, right? So I think what you're saying is that perhaps a lot of these pieces that we all rely on that are our governments, you know, here in the United States, but also around the world should perhaps recognize as this is, like you said, this is infrastructure and we should be paying these people to keep the equivalent of the roads and, and uh, all that working. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not claiming that it's a perfect analogy. There's, there's, there's lots of questions that are unanswered in that, right? How do you, how do you ensure that a project is well-maintained? What does that even look like? What does that mean? You know, you can look at a road and say, is it full of potholes or is it smooth as glass, right? It, it's just perfectly obvious, but to a, to a digital project, it's, it's not as clear. So yeah, but, but, but exploring those new ways because turning everybody into a businessman so that they can, they can keep their project going, it, it, it itself is not sustainable, right? So yeah, and that's why everything turns into a SaaS because a SaaS is easy to control. It's e easy to gatekeep behind a paywall and, and it's easy to charge for. Whereas a library on GitHub, you know, what do you do there? You know, obviously GitHub has sponsors, the sponsors feature, you've got Patreon, you've got Open Collective, you've got Tidelift. There's, there's other, you know, experiments that have been run, but nothing has risen to the top yet. And it's still, it's still a bit of a grind. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But hopefully, people will keep experimenting, and and maybe maybe governments will start thinking in the direction of you know what does it mean to have a a budget for digital infrastructure maintenance? Yeah, it's interesting because we we started thinking about like okay, where where can we find spaces for other sidekicks? But it sounds like maybe maybe that's just not realistic, right? Like maybe we need more of a yeah a rethinking of. I guess the the structure of how people get funded, yeah. Yeah, sometimes the the best way to solve a problem is to think at a higher level. You know, we the the sustainability problem in American Silicon Valley based open source developers is naturally going to tend toward venture capital and and capitalism. And I you know I think I think that's uh, extremely problematic on a, on a lot of different in a lot of different ways and. And so sometimes you need to step back and say, well, maybe we're, maybe we just don't have the right tool set to solve this problem. But, you know, uh, more than that, I, I'm, I'm not going to speculate on because it is a, it is a wicked problem to solve. Is there anything else you wanted to, to mention or thought we should have talked about? No, I, I, I loved the talk of sustainability and, and open source. And I, it's, it's a, it's a topic really dear to my heart obviously. So I, I'm happy to talk about it at length with anybody, anytime. So thank you for having me. All right. Thank you very much, Mike.